This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Willows. The treat, not the Alaska drilling project. Just an unfortunate coincidence. Welcome to episode 115 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about red spruce. Not to be confused with what people from New Jersey do when you say Born to Run isn't the greatest song of all time. Yeah, they go, Red Bruce. Now you might be wondering, why is Ethan talking about some random tree? Did they run out of topics? Did they lose their down-to-earth human-centered climate attitude and go full-on tree hugger? Did the Lorax kidnap an innocent penguin and now it's up to us to save her? The last one would make the podcast a lot more interesting, but no. If you go down the bizarre research paths that we do, you'll find that red spruces are fascinating trees. They're important to many animals and forest ecosystems, they store carbon under the soil quite effectively, and, believe it or not, the red spruce is one of the primary trees used in the construction of string instruments. That means without red spruce, I never could have spent six years of my childhood playing very screechy renditions of Eleanor Rigby on my violin. Imagine a world without that. I know my parents have. But red spruces are facing a variety of threats. They're bouncing back from some, as we will discuss, and certainly have reached their hot girl era. But as climate change worsens, they've got some new challenges to confront. Today, we'll discuss why red spruces matter, what climate change means for them, and what comes next for everyone's 11th favorite tree. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. I also want to mention to anyone listening in the college class of 2026 or 2027 that we just posted two part-time summer jobs. One is a research fellowship where you'll help research and fact-check scripts, write some web columns, help with some fundraising and educational resource projects. The other is a journalism and social media fellowship where you'll write some articles and help with a variety of website and social media-related projects. This is just for the classes of 2026 or 2027. It's a summer position, but we plan to hire back anyone who ends up being a good fit for part-time jobs during the school year as well. So, awesome opportunity. It's like a climate change boot camp, writing boot camp, and leadership boot camp all wrapped up into one. Head to thesweatypenguin.com fellowships to apply, and if you're not in the right age group, please help us spread the word. We really appreciate it. And if I keep you in suspense long enough, I might be able to get you to ask a question you'd never thought you'd wonder. 
What the hell is a red spruce? Glad you asked. The red spruce is a coniferous tree that is part of the spruce family, or Picea family to be precise. Its full scientific name is Picea rubens, which surprisingly is not Latin for emotional corned beef sandwich. A spruce in general is a northern evergreen tree with a sort of Christmas tree shape, short waxy leaves called needles, and cones that look like pine cones, but they're not, because, you know, it's not a pine. The red spruce is one of about 35 spruce species, and it can be distinguished by its more yellow-green needles that, according to Google, actually smell sort of like an orange rind. And I have to ask, who named this tree? It's green and yellow and smells like orange and you went with red spruce? Man, I hope I don't run into that dude at a traffic light. These aptly named conifers can be found anywhere from eastern Quebec and Nova Scotia, down through New England, and in the Adirondack Mountains in New York and the Appalachian Mountains, going as far south as North Carolina. In fact, the red spruce is actually Nova Scotia's provincial tree. Red spruces aren't that provincial, though, because they're actually really tolerant. Shade tolerant, that is. When growing, they don't need as much sunlight as other trees, and as a result, can grow in developed forests where taller trees might surround them. And honestly, it's about time trees become more tolerant to shade. Sure, they still tell some insensitive, two patches of shade walk into a bar jokes, but they're educating themselves, and that's what's really important here. But red spruce does have some limits to its range. If you didn't think trees could be relatable before, you might be surprised to learn that in order to survive, the red spruce needs to get really high. And we're not even at the Kurt Cobain part yet. The red spruce is often found at higher elevations that can even be up to around 6,200 feet in the southern Appalachian Mountains. However, that characteristic may be more of a benefit than a limitation. Our expert this week is Dr. Alexandra Kasiba, Extension Assistant Professor of Forestry at the University of Vermont. According to Dr. Kasiba, Red spruce's preference for high altitudes allows it to serve an important niche in the ecosystem. As far as red spruce's, spruce's niche in the forest, like I said, it lives often up at higher elevation, but it lives throughout our forest um, ecosystem, usually in places that are rocky, that other species can't grow. It's good at growing in, in sort of marginal site conditions. And so it occupies a niche where maybe sugar maple um, or, or, or birch can't grow. And it provides winter cover for a lot of species. So, you know, birds and things like that. Certainly there are many birds that nest in the summer in red spruce um, and other conifers because it's a great nesting habitat. Beyond getting high, another relatable aspect of the red spruce is that it's extremely desirable. Oh, I'm the only one who finds that relatable? I actually don't, but I figured if I left that joke in the script, maybe I could will it into existence. The reason red spruce is desirable is its... Wood properties. The wood of red spruce is strong, lightweight, and easily worked. 
it it is a softwood, but I, I guess it just has a really good personality. Okay, I, I made it through that. <sighs> but these qualities make red spruce wood ideal for a variety of uses, from construction lumber to plywood to boxes to sash frames to paper pulp production to Christmas trees. Perhaps its most interesting use, though, is the creation of guitars, violins, and other stringed instruments. Red spruce wood has a high stiffness-to-weight ratio, according to its grinder profile, I'm guessing, meaning the wood is able to vibrate freely while maintaining its structural integrity. Good lord, I can't work like this! We are on PBS! That, plus its tight and even grain, give red spruce wood the ability to produce clear and resonant tones. Because of how perfect wood must be for instruments, the perfect log of red spruce wood can go for up to 10 to 20 times its normal value in that industry. It's not the only wood used in instrument making, but particularly for the construction of soundboards, red spruce is considered one of the best. Beyond their economic value, red spruces have a number of environmental benefits. Their needles are an important food source for spruce grouses, their bark is an important food source for North American porcupines, and their seeds are an important food source for mice, voles, and white-winged crossbills. In fact, red spruce seeds actually make up 25-50% to 50 of the white-winged crossbills' diet. Well, except for the ones that don't know what they want to eat and take too long to decide and ultimately end up ordering sushi on Uber Eats for $60 at 10 p.m. Red spruces also provide important winter cover for species such as moose and white-tailed deer. And if we're talking about humans, red spruces provide a pretty important environmental service to us, too. Red spruce, like most conifers, is, is very good at storing carbon in the soil. Red spruce has very acidic needles, even though that's a little, maybe that might be confusing to say. <laughs> well, red spruce has needles that decompose very slowly. And so when, even though it is an evergreen, it does lose its needles every seven to nine years. They kind of go through a cycle, but they decompose very slowly. And that means the soil really builds up a, a really deep, what we call a duff layer from those needles. And so the soil under these red spruce trees is often very thick, a lot of organic matter, and that means a lot of carbon storage. So we look at the comparison to other forest types, um, red spruce forests often have a lot more carbon in the soil compared to those other forest types. And then I mentioned also it's very long lived tree, which is great for ecosystems to have trees that can exist in the forest and persist for hundreds of years, quite incredible. Exactly. Between their slow decomposition and their lifespan of sometimes over 400 years, red spruces are really effective at storing carbon, especially as compared to a hardwood tree. Coniferous? More like proiferous, am I right? Please don't leave. But that carbon storage ability means red spruce forests play an important role as we work to tackle climate change. When that carbon is in the atmosphere, it is absorbing solar radiation and warming the planet. When it's in a red spruce tree or the surrounding soil, it just chills out and becomes friends with the worms. 
And now that you're all hyped up about red spruce, it's time for the bad news. Red spruces are under threat, and as we lose them, we lose all those cool things I just told you about. Seemingly, red spruces have always been up against it. They were logged extensively in the 19th and early 20th centuries, they faced unmanaged wildfires, and they dealt with Kurt Cobain smashing all the world's guitars during his time with Nirvana. All of that had equally devastating impacts on the environment. But we're going to fast forward to the 1960s, when keeping in line with the rocker aesthetic, Red Spruce encountered a new enemy, Acid Rain. Acid rain occurs when sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides are released into the atmosphere, largely due to coal combustion and vehicle emissions at the time, and those chemicals react with oxygen and water vapor to form sulfuric or nitric acid. That acid then returns to the ground through rain, snow, and even fog. And let me tell you, my cousin had acid fog once and he never recovered. Now when acid rain gets into the soil, it can actually dissolve important nutrients for trees. Here's Dr. Kosiba explaining how acid rain's effect on calcium proved to be a difficult challenge for the red spruce. It leaches calcium, a really, really important nutrient for trees, for us, for all you know organisms. It leaches calcium directly from their needles, and it actually leaches calcium from the soil. And that has a lot of other cascading effects in the ecosystem. But red spruce in particular is susceptible to this is because that calcium is really important for a number of processes in the, in the tree. Photosynthesis is one of them, but also getting ready for cold winters. So cold hardiness, we call it. Calcium is needed to prepare that tree, get ready to sustain cold temperatures in the winter. So when there's less calcium available for red spruce, they're less cold tolerant, which actually meant when in the winter, when we got cold temperatures, their needles would freeze and, and be damaged. So without acid rain and enough calcium, their needles are able to withstand the cold temperatures. But then when they're not able to develop the winter hardiness, they essentially are damaged more easily. So how bad was this acid rain? At the height of their die-off, many forests were losing around 50% of their red spruce. Some states had it even worse. In West Virginia today, only around 10% of the state's red spruce coverage remains. Fortunately, the 1990 amendments to the Clean Air Act addressed acid rain head-on, and today, our rain has gotten back to being more basic. Last I checked, the rain was studying abroad in Italy, wearing white converse and an American apparel hoodie. It did the Leaning Tower of Pisa picture and everything. And as acid rain has diminished, we've seen red spruce populations start to recover a bit. That said, acid does have some long-lasting effects. I mean, look at Steven Tyler. Even though acid rain is all but gone, today's soil is still acidic and low in calcium and magnesium. These elements provide important nutrients to red spruces and help with cell wall production that strengthens the plants. Without them, the red spruce's immune systems can be weakened, making it more susceptible to pests and disease, and unfortunately, trees can't bathe themselves in Purell every day. 
So even though acid rain has largely disappeared, red spruces are still dealing with its effects. But while acid rain is trending in the right direction, something else is trending in the wrong direction. Can you guess what it is? That's right, Ted Lasso! Seriously, what are they doing this season? I'm not sure if you follow sports, but not once in history has a team been motivated to win because their former assistant coach threw a hissy fit and the owner was annoyed with her ex-husband. Well, I guess red spruces don't have to deal with that, but they do have to deal with climate change. As Dr. Kasiba mentioned, red spruces are sensitive to the cold, especially when they're low on calcium. They're delicate giants, like John Cena or The Rock. But since the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the world, the polar jet stream, which separates cold Arctic air from warmer mid-latitude air, is weakening. With that weakening barrier, we're seeing more of that frigid polar air diving south during the winter and entering red spruce ecosystems, inhibiting tree growth, freezing foliage, and affecting the health of the crown of the tree, which refers to its branches and leaves. I must say, if we're so worried about crown health, have we considered just telling these trees to floss more? That's what my dentist told me. A 2013 study in forest ecology and management, for example, found a 2003 cold snap caused damage to over 90% of red spruce in the northeastern United States. Even three years after the event, the trees still showed significant growth reduction and absorbed approximately 2.5 million fewer tons of carbon dioxide than previous years. That's 653 times the annual emissions from Mark Wahlberg's private jet. And I thought I had seasonal depression. Now I know what you're thinking. If red spruces don't like the cold, could the warmer temperatures from climate change actually help them? Yes and no. It's like people who say, I can't wait for summer. I know, you hate the snow, but is it really better than getting crammed into a subway car with a bunch of sweaty people? I mentioned how red spruces have been bouncing back a bit due to our work eliminating acid rain. Dr. Kusiba's work found that warmer temperatures have helped that bounce back too. However, she says that the positive effect may not last forever. But we're seeing that as the climate is changing and winters, springs and falls are getting warmer, the tree is able to uh, take advantage of those conditions. You know, this is a somewhat good news story that we're seeing, but we don't know how long that will last because as the climate keeps changing and temperatures keep increasing, it could alter other processes or sort of push red spruce over the edge in other ways. So it's, we don't expect that this will continue indefinitely, but right now we're showing some, some good recovery of the species, especially after so many decades of it being in decline across the region. Exactly. Even if warmer temperatures have been helpful to this point, they're likely to cause some problems. And some of these problems are already here. Take drought. We're seeing things like potential for more drought conditions, high temperatures in the summer. We do know those conditions are not favorable to red spruce. And my research did show that, that there's a potential negative drought signal with red spruce in the summer. So when you have high temperature cu temperatures coupled with low rainfall, um, that was correlated with lower growth. And with climate change, as we see those factors increase, 
we could predict that that would become more stressful for the species. Under low water conditions, red spruce roots may not be able to transport the same amount of water to the leaves, or the seedlings may have trouble with photosynthesis and end up with low carbohydrate reserves. And I know a low-carb diet sounds healthy, but red spruces do not do well when they try keto. According to a 2021 study in the Canadian Journal of Forest Research, red spruce seedling mortality rates nearly tripled when they faced drought conditions. With climate change driving more frequent, severe, and lengthy droughts, the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources actually rated red spruces as highly vulnerable and predicted they may disappear entirely as temperatures rise. Hopefully we can prevent that from happening, but it goes to show that drought presents a very serious concern for these trees. Warmer temperatures can also lead to new pests and diseases. Let me introduce you to the sweaty penguin's next destructive caterpillar, the spruce budworm. Bruce Budworm started making music in his garage back in 95, but with the invention of the internet, his electronic sound took off, rivaling the traditional acoustic of the Red Spruce. Spruce Budworm spread fast, and soon he was everywhere, turning into mobs and corrupting the youth. This wasn't your father's Budworm. These caterpillars feed on the needles of their Red Spruce rivals, to the point of defoliating the tree, weakening it, or even killing it themselves, leaving just a few diehard Red Spruce fans scouring goodwill for their records. These caterpillars do have predators, but they can be tough to keep under control, since a single spruce budworm can lay hundreds of eggs at a time, and in fact climate change could be making the situation worse. Spruce budworms could shift north as those ecosystems warm up, threatening new ecosystems where the red spruce can't take the heat. And for the ecosystems they already occupy, female budworms lay 50% more eggs at 77 degrees Fahrenheit than at 59 degrees Fahrenheit, meaning their populations could have an easier time exploding. Currently, budworm outbreaks are being controlled, mostly by strict parents in vacation Bible school, but an increase in range could make their numbers harder to monitor and stay on top of. If an uncontrolled outbreak were to occur, tree growth could be reduced as much as 90%, and spruce tree mortality could increase 35-40%. to 40%. That said, it's not necessarily just one spruce budworm outbreak taking down a whole forest. Dr. Kusiba explains that it's the piling up of stressors that creates these negative impacts. Certainly in the introduction of new insect or disease pests on tree species um, is a concern. We don't always know what, what is going to be introduced, and particularly non-native invasive insects and diseases. And also, even with some of our native insects and diseases, we don't totally know how climate change will interact with them. We call the one of the phrases we use is that climate change is a threat multiplier in the idea that it can sort of exacerbate these other stressors. And so that is a big concern for me for red spruce and all um, tree species. Exactly. It's not necessarily one single threat that will wipe out red spruces. 
low calcium and acidic soil, cold snaps, droughts, and more might break down the red spruce's strength little by little, making it that much more vulnerable. When spruce budworms, other insects such as the spruce beetle, bark beetle, or wood borer, harmful fungi, or any other pest or disease might arrive. Now, we already discussed many of the animals that rely on the red spruce for food and shelter, but it's worth noting that even animals that don't eat red spruces can feel these effects too. And that's due in no small part to a love triangle. Step aside, Bella, Edward, and Jacob. It's red spruce, flying squirrels, and subterranean truffles. Yeah, ours is a lot more fun than Twilight. The truffles help the red spruce take up and absorb nutrients, while the red spruce helps to feed the fungi carbohydrates to grow and thrive. The squirrels then eat the truffles year-round. In fact, truffles and other fungi found in spruce forests actually make up 85% of the northern flying squirrel's diet. And after eating, the squirrels will poop out spores, which are sort of the fungus equivalent of a seed. Two subspecies of northern flying squirrels are federally listed as endangered. What happens when red spruces decline? Well, the truffle populations suffer, then the northern flying squirrels refuse to eat their french fries without truffle oil because they're classy like that, and suddenly they start losing territory to a rival squirrel known as the southern flying squirrel. That's right, there's a squirrel civil war heating up in these forests. I hope any children's animation writers listening are paying close attention. These southern flying squirrels aren't just competing for space to call home, though. These squirrels are hosts for a parasitic roundworm that can be deadly to Carolina northern flying squirrels. And when an endangered species is competing with a more aggressive competitor that's carrying a deadly parasite, the North is going to have a lot harder of a time fighting off the South this time around. Although I did see a northern flying squirrel with a beard and top hat giving a pretty motivational speech in Gettysburg last week. So are red spruces doomed? Will every child have to give up orchestra and switch to the clarinet? Of course not. In our next segment, we'll explore how we can monitor changes to red spruce ecosystems, protect them from these looming challenges, and ensure the music industry never runs out of its stiff, vibrating, easily workable wood. Do you love how invasive species always seem to enjoy climate change? Then willows are for you. Again, the tree, not the oil project. But willow trees are invasive too. And since they perform well in waterlogged soil, they may be just fine as sea level rise floods their ecosystems. Talk about a rebel. And yes, we're still talking about the plant, just very bad timing that willow trees decided this week to buy an ad spot. Willows, the only plant that can survive two 12-year-old wizards ramming into it with a flying car. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. So how do we help Spruce Springsteen return to being the boss of our northeastern forests? First, we can ask scientists for help. 
If there is one thing scientists are, it's helpful, right? How else would we have invented the tangy pickle Dorito? According to Dr. Kasiba, scientists have a lot of information that can help foresters know which trees to harvest and which to leave alone. Well, we really do have programs in our state that encourage the use of foresters, which a forester helps a landowner, you know, come up with those plans, how to manage their land, how to sustainably harvest timber in a way that allows for the ecological processes to happen and the health of the forest to be improved. And so, yes, we have improved that quite a bit. And a lot of it is because in Vermont and, and New England, we have a lot of small family forest landowners who want to see their forest land, you know, in good condition. They want to see it healthy and, and productive. And we've also had, you know, decades of research that's helped us understand how trees work, how ecological processes work in forests, and that informs management decisions that we do. So we can now harvest trees, but allow for regeneration of a new cohort of trees. We can leave some of the best trees in the forest because we know that they're a good source of seed for the next generation and different factors like that. So um, things have changed quite a bit in the, in the world of logging and logging practices. There's some cool ideas in there, right? Like all animals and plants, each individual tree has its own unique genetic makeup, which determines its physical characteristics, such as its height, growth rate, and resistance to diseases and pests. By increasing the genetic diversity and then prioritizing the survival of the trees that can best handle the looming environmental changes, foresters can essentially aid the natural selection process and help the species survive. Maybe we could even invent red spruce tinder. I mean, tinder literally means flammable material, and red spruces are flammable, so I think this is a match made in heaven. Swipe right on that plan. This sort of genetic diversity research does seem to be starting. In 2020, for example, the Central Appalachian Spruce Restoration Initiative planted 57,500 red spruce seedlings with a variety of genetic makeups in a nursery. Which makes sense. I mean, 57,501 seedlings would be kind of excessive, so they really nailed down the sweet spot. But perhaps projects like this one, or the programs in Vermont that Dr. Kasiba mentioned, could lead to some interesting insights for foresters. How about the lingering acid rain problem? One idea that's been researched is artificially adding calcium. Unfortunately, they don't make Flintstones vitamins for plants, but a 2011 study in the journal Trees tested the results of adding calcium to the watershed of a red spruce experimental forest in New Hampshire and found added calcium led to higher estimated levels of foliage growth, increased stress tolerance, more productive foliage during the cold season, and greater crown mass. That's not to say we should just go dumping milk in our forests. Adding nutrients to an environment can sometimes have unintended consequences if they run off. But given the way red spruces are struggling due to a calcium deficiency, this idea is certainly worth exploring. Another practice which we seem to be getting better at is harvesting red spruces when they reach their optimal rotation age. And no, optimal rotation age does not refer to the best birthday to play Ring Around the Rosie. If you're wondering, though, that age is 25. 
If we go back a century or two where we were clear-cutting red spruce forests until there was nothing left, sure, there may have been a lot of timber, but we damaged ecosystems and left ourselves with a lot less timber to work with today. On the flip side, if we never cut down red spruces, we'd be giving up a lot of potential economic benefit, and there would be no Yitzhak Perlman to pretend you've listened to. The optimal rotation age is about finding that in-between point where you get the most bang for your buck when you cut down the tree. For red spruces, that's around 60 to 90 years old. It's big enough to have a lot of timber, but young enough that it won't be as vulnerable to diseases, pests, or other issues. So again, the more we keep track of what's going on in a forest, the more likely we are to be able to cut down red spruces at the optimal time for both the environment and economy. And if you're having trouble telling if a red spruce is in that 60 to 90 age range, just hang around until it tells you you should smile more. That optimal rotation age may not be a cut-and-fast rule, though. As Dr. Kusiba said, it might be in our best interest to leave big dominant trees alone, or it might be worth preserving certain trees that fit a desired genetic profile, such as being slightly more drought-resistant or cold-tolerant or only needed Invisalign. And on the flip side, sometimes you might consider taking out a tree early. You know, sometimes these trees, they go against the family. And if there's one thing that's important... Yeah, I can't do that voice. But it's true. Sometimes the Fredos of the forest just have to be dealt with. And that's where forest thinning comes in. Forest thinning is the selective removal of some of the trees in the forest, with the goal of reducing competition for resources, such as water, nutrients, and sunlight. Since red spruce are shade-tolerable trees and like to grow in the understory of other trees, this would provide them enough room to grow and move further throughout forests. Not only that, but by removing some of the fuel that litters the ground and creating some gaps between trees, it could limit the spread of potential wildfires. That said, improper forest thinning can do damage to an ecosystem, so it's important to be mindful of how and when you implement the practice. What about the spruce budworm? Well, there's a number of options, all with the goal of stopping the spread, like with COVID or cheese tax TikToks. If a forest stand is younger, it might respond well to thinning, where you cut down the most damaged trees and leave the ones that seem to be healthiest. That said, leaving small clusters of trees by themselves can also make the trees sitting ducks for a spruce budworm invasion, so it would be important to be mindful of how the trees are spread out as well. If the forest stand is older, it likely won't respond well to thinning and may actually be worth cutting down entirely. I know, that's not the best outcome, but at least you can harvest that timber, replant the forest, and prevent these spruce budworms from exploding even further. If there's three things the Lion King taught us, it's that clouds can talk, the weather magically changes when the mean lion is in charge, and we sometimes have to be okay with there being a circle of life. 
Other considerations regarding the effectiveness of thinning might include the season, the soil moisture, and the species diversity. Fir trees are actually a lot weaker than spruces in the face of a budworm invasion, so it's often worth cutting down more of the firs instead and try to let the spruces hold their own. Another option when it comes to spruce budworms is the use of pesticides. I know what you're thinking. Pesticides as a solution? Isn't that usually the problem? And no, it really depends on what the pesticide is and what you're doing with it. It's like Costco. Usually I don't need a three-pack of refrigerators, but if I want a hot dog for $1.50, suddenly Costco really comes in handy. In the case of spruce budworms, the insecticide I came across a lot in my research is one we discussed all the way back in episode 11 on gypsy moths, and that is Bacillus thuringiensis var Christaki, or BTK. BTK isn't a chemical, it's actually a living bacteria, and it can be applied to the needles of a spruce or a fir so that the budworms consume it. But unfortunately for the spruce budworm, when they eat BTK, they don't get to have it your way. This bacteria actually cuts holes in the caterpillar's stomach lining, allowing its gut bacteria to leach into the rest of its body, causing the caterpillar to die. I know that sounds terrible, but in all fairness, it's not that different from eating Jack in the Box at 2am. But Ethan, isn't it dangerous to put stomach-gobbling bacteria into the environment? Shockingly, not at all. According to the Canadian Forest Service's Dr. Rob Johns, this bacteria only activates in the stomachs of insects. Our stomachs of fish, deer, birds, humans, frogs, amphibians, most terrestrial organisms have extremely battery acid-like stomachs. And this is the environment in which our enzymes work. It helps break down our food. This is the environment in which our, we, we digest our food. And then we move to insects, and they have extremely alkaline or basic stomach contents. And this is the environment in which their stomach digests the plant diet, the largely plant diet that they have. Um, it just so happens that for the skin to be, to be uh, dissolved around the spore and the crystalline BTK, it has to be in a very alkaline environment, sort of an ammonia-level environment. And this is why it gets broken down in the stomachs of insects doesn't do well in even mildly alkaline or, or, or acidic. And so it starts to break down, and that's why it doesn't really affect these other things. Dr. Johns points out that BTK only works in extremely alkaline environments, or environments with an extremely high pH. In the very acidic stomach of a human, or even a more neutral stomach like a bee whose pH might be around 6, BTK will literally have zero effect. In fact, scientists have even done tests where they gave rats water that contained over 120 million colonies of BTK per milliliter and found that the BTK had zero negative effect. Since the highest quantities of BTK ever found in the natural environment are maybe around 600 colonies per milliliter, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room to work with here. That's not to say there aren't concerns to be mindful of. We like some caterpillars. We did a whole episode on monarch butterflies last summer. But if you remember, monarch butterflies leave the Northeast for a chunk of the year on their trips to Mexico, so there's plenty of time where foresters wouldn't have any reason to be concerned about them. 
It can also be tricky to transport a living insecticide, since you have to keep it alive. The biggest concern, though, isn't anything environmental, though. It's money. Doing these BTK applications isn't cheap. It's even more expensive than a dozen eggs. That's why it's worth combining BTK with some of the other aforementioned pest management strategies rather than just relying on the insecticide. You can perhaps use BTK to keep the trees alive until you're ready to cut them down, or do applications every couple years, or that sort of thing. There's a lot of options. But it's important to understand Dr. John's point about our stomach compositions, since that's why human and animal health is not a concern in the case of BTK. What about policy? Obviously, policy has a role here, too whether it be regulations, investments, market mechanisms, or simply recommendations. Policymakers can encourage or even implement a lot of the aforementioned solutions. Governments can also fund research, raise awareness, and most importantly, address climate change. We have plenty of other episodes on climate solutions you can go check out. And according to Dr. Kusiba, the Red Spruce's history should actually give us some motivation to do that. I think the story of red spruce is a helpful story to keep in mind and to be aware of that we noticed an issue with something that we were doing, which was creating pollutants that were causing acid rain. We saw that there was ecosystem damage. Scientists went out and did research, collected data and found the cause was and the implications. And then we enacted policy changes to alleviate those impacts. It's a little bit more tangible and easy to solve compared to climate change, but it's a very similar issue. We're seeing ecosystem damage and issues because of climate change and researchers have collected data, they've done studies, we know what the implications and the causes are, and now we need more policy changes to enact those solutions. And so we know that we can do it, Um, We just have to make it happen. And I think the story of red spruce is one that is helpful context to know that we there can be ecosystem recovery with appropriate interventions. If we've done it before, we can do it again. The only question is, who wants the red spruce reboot? Peacock or Disney Plus? Look, I know it's overwhelming when climate change is coming, affecting these important trees, and while we can absolutely get that issue under control, we can't necessarily stop it overnight. But the healthier we make these red spruce forests, the better equipped they'll be to handle it. Remember, it's not a single stressor that gets them, it's the combination of stressors. If we can take some stuff off their plate and allow them to focus their energy on adapting to a changing climate, we can keep carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, protect our beloved birds and flying squirrels, and ensure Stradivarius can continue making violins with wood with the highest stiffness-to-weight ratio possible for centuries to come. That wraps up episode 115 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. 
clips today came from the Humane Center for Research on Sustainable Forests. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paraland Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash Promise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Paraland Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.